0: Of simpletons, you're listening to the Minimalist Private Podcast. Today, we're here with a very special guest, the renowned psychologist Dr. Susan David. She wrote this book. I'll hold it up if you're watching the video version. It's called Emotional Agility. Mm. Susan, thank you so much for being here. Yeah.
1: I'm so excited.
0: I want to I want to talk to you about getting unstuck, and mm-hmm. we'll talk about that in a moment. But uh, we start this podcast off with a little segment called "More About Less," where we talk, we read something as a jump-off point for a discussion, and usually it's like an article or a tweet. But since we have your book here, I wanted to read a little bit from your book and okay. use that as a discussion point. So there's a few sections that we could choose from. I'm going to start with page 11, toward the beginning of the book, because you talk about the four. Um. What do we call them? The four essential movements. So, um, in the book, you say, and I'm quoting just directly from the book here. Emotional agility is a process that allows you to be in the moment, changing or maintaining your behaviors to live in ways that align with your intentions and values. The process isn't about ignoring difficult emotions and thoughts. It's about holding those emotions and thoughts loosely, facing them courageously and compassionately, and then moving past them to make big things happen in your life. The process of gaining emotional agility unfolds in four essential movements. Now, there are four here, and we'll talk about them, but there's one I really want to focus on here. Showing up is the first one. Mm-hmm. Stepping out, walking your why, and moving on. And I'm mm-hmm. sure we'll talk about all four of those yeah. today on the podcast, but I wanted to go to page 89, where we talk about stepping out. And so, we'll get there really quick, and we'll talk about stepping out and what that means. So I noticed here on page 89, you talk about noticing with curiosity and courage, creating space in between Mm -hmm. and letting go. And really, our podcast is a podcast about letting go Mm. in many respects. As the minimalist, it often starts with our stuff, right? Yeah. And letting go of material possessions. But those material possessions tend to be a a physical manifestation of
1: yes. what's
0: going We cling to those things because yep. we're clinging to yep. something else. So one more quick passage, and then I want to hear from you. This is from page 111. Clinging to that one small piece of emotional driftwood prevents us from feeling part of the dynamic system that is the universe itself. Mm. And so anytime we're clinging, especially to these emotions, in a way it prevents us from moving and going wherever we want to go.
1: Yeah, when we hold on to emotions in ways that are unhelpful for us, and they're different aspects as to how we do this, uh, what we actually land up doing is, even with good intentions, we get stuck in those difficult emotions. Mm. And, uh, you know, what becomes really profound in this is that when we are stuck in difficult emotions, we aren't able to connect with um The core of ourselves, our values, our intentions, our wisdom, and we also aren't able to connect effectively with the people around us. Uh, We're holding so tightly to what it is we feel Mm -hmm. that we aren't seeing the love in our child's eyes we are brushing past our spouse in the kitchen, they're on their cell phones and we're on ours. Mm. And a large part of our behaviors, and you already reflected on this, the, the manifestation of physical objects is really just that it's a manifestation very often of what we're doing psychologically. And so a lot of my work on emotional agility is really about getting clean with yourself.
0: Mm. What does it mean yeah. to be emotionally agile?
1: Do you want the nerd definition or the or the non nerd definition? Um, (laughs) I think we
2: want
0: both. Yeah, let's let's do both. both. So
1: the. The non-no definition. I'll start off with, which is you can hear we were joking earlier that my accent is a beautifully cultivated Bostonian accent. (laughs) Um, Not okay. So, so I I want to share a particular word with you because I think that uh, describes so much of what my work is about. So, I grew up in South Africa, and in South Africa, there's this. Phrase that you hear every single day on the streets, and it, it's a phrase that is the word sabo um, bona, and the person in response will say yebo sabo bona, and there's there's nothing um, glorious about the phrase other than that it means hello. Mm-hmm. You know, the person says sabo bona yebo sabo bona. It's a Zulu greeting, uh, but there is such a beautiful and powerful intention behind the word sabo bona because sabo bona literally translated means I. See you. Mm. And by seeing you, I bring you into being. Mm. And I'll say that again. I think it's just so beautiful. I see you, and by seeing you, I bring you into being. So, what is emotional agility? I think the essence of my work is about seeing and unseeing the threat of seeing, the threat of unseeing. And what do I mean by that? The thread, firstly, of uh, seeing the self, because we can talk so much about uh, the narratives that exist in the world around us, you know, just be positive, just, you know, look on the bright side, oh, you're in a pandemic, find the silver lining, you know, they're they're all of these narratives that essentially conspire against us seeing ourselves Mm. and being clean and true to ourselves. Mm. So a core part of emotional agility in the non-nerd way is that really the thread of my work is about this um, notion of seeing ourselves in ways that are clean and healthy Mm -hmm. and that the ability to see ourselves is what supports and enables our ability to see others too. Mm. So when you strip it all away, that's what, what my work is about. Um, if I'm going to give like a a then, you know, nerd definition, yeah, yeah, the 20-year emotion researcher, <laughs> blah, blah, blah definition, yeah. it is the recognition that every day we have thoughts, emotions, and stories. We have mm. a thought that might be, there's no point in trying, I'm not good enough, nothing ever goes my way. We might have emotions, emotions like stress or sadness, disappointment, grief. Anxiety. And we've got stories, and some of our stories were written on our mental chalkboards when we were five years old. You know, stories about who we are, whether we're good enough, what kind of love we deserve, whether we're creative, all of these things. And these thoughts, emotions, and stories are actually normal. You know, while we live in a society that says positive thinking only or good thoughts only, and all this, actually, that turns out to be, in your words, it turns out to be clutter.
2: Yeah. Mm.
1: Um, It it turns out to be a cluttered, noisy narrative. Uh, The thoughts, emotions, and stories that we have are normal. They are our body and our psychology trying to help us to make sense of the world. Mm. If we didn't have them, we would not be alive. Mm. And so there's nothing inherently wrong with these thoughts, emotions, and stories uh, contrary to what the world tells us. Mm. But what often happens is we get stuck in them. We start treating them as fact, as truth, And they start to direct our actions. And so the nerd definition of emotional agility is it's the ability to face into all of your thoughts, emotions, and stories, uh, not trying to unhealthily push them aside or get stuck in them. Mm -hmm. And that involves being curious about them. We'll dig deeper into all of these in this conversation, but it involves curiosity. It involves compassion. Compassion because it's hard to human. And it also involves courage. It takes courage to live in the world. It takes courage to live in ways that are concordant with your values. Mm -hmm. And so it's about this ability to be with our difficult thoughts, emotions, and stories with curiosity, with compassion, and with the courage to take values-connected
3: steps. Mm. I love it. You know, when I was reading this book, I was kind of reading about um, the unhealthy ways of dealing with emotions. Yeah. Yeah. And uh one of them you kind of mention it, trying to bury an emotion,
1: mm-hmm. and that
3: actually ends up being more work in the end if you try to bury the emotion. would you, would you yes, yeah.
1: yes, again, I don't want to kind of go too much into this, I think early on, but we live in a culture where the notion of happiness is Literally, the kind of declaration of independence is that every person deserves happiness right. oh, and yes. and while that f- messaging feels very innocuous um and it feels like, well, of course, of course, I want to be happy, mm-hmm. uh, what we find psychologically is that people then start to hustle with their difficult emotions because mm. the truth is that um the beauty of life holds hands with its fragility.
0: Ooh, you could tweet that podcast, Sean. Yeah, that's. <laughs> say that again. That is that's yeah, good.
1: Well, yeah, well, and, and isn't it? I mean, the beauty of life holds hands with its fragility. We all are young until we are not. Mm-hmm. We are healthy until the diagnosis brings us to our knees. Mm-hmm. We might be in a project, in an organization where we think things are going well, and then we turn around and we find ourselves unneeded, unwanted, cast away. We nag our children, you know, clean your room. Mm. And then one day there's silence where that child once was, now making his or her way in the world. Or as we've experienced recently, we think we're in control of our strategy, our podcast, our social media plan, whatever it is. And then COVID comes and like taps us on the shoulder and kind of laughs in our face and says, you know, you had this illusion of control you thought you were in control yeah. but you never were and so the beauty of life holds hands with its fragility and what that means at a f- fundamental level for us as humans is that the only way we can be healthy the only way we can see ourselves and be clean with ourselves is when we are able to develop the skills that help us to be in the world as it is, not as we wish it to be.
3: That's, yeah.
1: And so when you Mm. talk about pushing emotions aside, often what we find and what I find in my work is that people will often think, oh, I've got to be happy. There's something wrong with me if I'm unhappy. Mm -hmm. And so what they start doing is they start hustling with their difficult emotions. They say things like, I'm unhappy in my job, but at least I've got a job. You know, I should be grateful to have a job. They, they push these difficult emotions aside, and again, it looks good on the surface. But there are massive psychological costs to doing what I call bottling difficult emotions, even when it's in the service of something as beautiful sounding as "I just want to be happy."
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and the costs of these, I can share some of them with you. Uh, we know that people, when they Characteristically, and and well, I'm I'm using this term bottling, in a in a way to describe a characteristic way of dealing with difficult emotions, which is that it's avoidant. It's mm. like I've got this thing. I'm feeling grief. I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling angry, but I don't want to go there for whatever reason. Right. It feels difficult. It feels like if I go to that place in my relationship, that it's going to bring about something that feels difficult for me to manage. And so I'm just not going to go there. So when I use that language, I'm talking about ca- doing it characteristically. I'm not talking about the, you know, you break up with your girlfriend and you go for a job interview I'm, I'm, and you push your emotions aside that day for the interview. That's, that's not what I'm talking, you know, mm-hmm. that's a kind of one-off experience. What I'm talking about is a strategy that becomes a default strategy of dealing with difficult emotions, which is about pushing them aside. Mm. And the costs are profound. I almost imagine that it's like you've got these emotion books that you're carrying and you're spending so much white-knuckled energy in carrying them away from you Mm. that in time your arms get tired and your heart gets heavy and... You're spending so much energy doing that, that you're not able to actually be present in your life. Uh, And we know that when people do this around difficult emotions, there is a real cost. So uh, we know that when people do this, it actually impacts on their ability to problem solve. Mm. Because if you keep pushing aside difficult emotions and difficult experiences then you aren't actually developing the resources and the strategies and the support that you need in order to deal with the problem that you're facing. Mm. So bottling emotions actually is associated with lower levels of problem solving, which is a paradox because often people bottle emotions because they're like, Oh, I'm busy in my job. I've like got too much to do. I'm trying to get on with the project. I know my team's unhappy, but I can't go there because we're trying to do our work. Yeah. But the paradox is it actually impacts on problem solving. It impacts on relationships because people experience us as um, not having the level of vulnerability and connection that is actually really important in being human. And it is associated longer term with lower levels of well-being, high levels of burnout, Mm. um, high levels of depression, anxiety, and so on. Yeah.
0: Yeah. My wife and I are both bottlers in, in a way. Um, and what we've realized is that, in a way, to extend the metaphors, yeah. we have to constantly take the top off the bottle. Otherwise, some sort of pressure is going to make it explode. I think about when I first met my wife, she was making kombucha uh, and she would make it at home, right? Yeah. And then not knowing that like it was sealed too tight and it literally exploded all over. This glass bottle exploded all over e- the kitchen. E- and that is a perfect <laughs> metaphor for what happens with our emotions. And yeah. that is
1: exactly what happens. The, the psychological term for this is amplification. Uh, and people in in psychological research show that there is this, um, what is described psychologically as emotional leakage. And emotional leakage is this very idea that you decide that you're angry with someone, but you're just not going to say something about it. You're not going to work through it. You're just going to kind of push it aside. And then what happens, you're having a Thanksgiving meal with that person and suddenly you like become all snarky or, you know, or or someone in the workplace lands up not having the necessary conversation with the person that they need to have the conversation with. But Mm. they then... Take out their emotional experience on someone else, and we find that very commonly. And it's it's a rebound effect because mm. you know, to your point, uh, Ran, you are saying that it's it's very much about um, what what is happening is there is actually psychological effort that we are using when we try not to think about something. Yeah, there's yeah. actual energy that is involved in trying not to think about something. Yeah, and that energy then leads us to be able to um have less capacity to regulate ourselves effectively.
3: Yeah. I mean it is it's a it's a high cost to bottle everything I'm yeah. for sure. Man, when I think about <clears throat> emotional agility, first off, I think of myself, I'm very, I'm very emo. Josh, he just doesn't get my art. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you just feel unseen and disconnected yeah, with exactly. and like,
3: exactly. You know. But a lot of that has to do with trauma. Leave me
0: alone, mom. Yeah. <laughs>
3: slams door turns on fallout boy (laughs) oh man no i uh it has to do with a lot of trauma that 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 happened to me when i was a kid and at 40 years old i'm really glad i've learned how to like deal with these things helpfully and i'm still working on it. i'm not perfect at it but i did all of these all the bad ways to cope with emotions like i have done them all i'm I'm pretty sure and uh the 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 when you're able to let go of of these certain emotions, it's I can't explain it any more than it's the most freeing thing in the world. And you talked earlier about how you can you can be clean with yourself, and when you're clean yes. with yourself, you can present yourself to the world in a very authentic, genuine way. Yes,
2: and, and that's that, powerful. And
3: that's powerful. And that is what this work that you're talking about, getting to this emotional uh, agility, is um, is 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 going to lead you to being more of yourself and being more confident to put out you for who you are out into the world.
1: Yeah, I think it's so important firstly, you know what you what you talk about is um this idea that when you were a child, you used strategies in order to cope with the reality mm-hmm. of the situation that you're yeah. facing. Mm-hmm. And what becomes really important is that those strategies were actually functional. You know, those strategies were actually Helpful mm-hmm. in protecting you psychologically mm. for the circumstances that you were in. And then what happens is those ways of being with yourself and being with emotions that were functional at one point in your life, maybe you, you know, are guarded or maybe you, you know, don't connect in a particular way that feels authentic or whatever it, whatever that is for the individual.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But those strategies that were functional at one point in your life, now when you, in completely new circumstances, when you are in a relationship that is actually a relationship that is inviting you mm-hmm. to be whole and real and connected, if you now use the, those Shop-worn strategies from when you were a child, you actually now are applying rigid past strategies to a new situation
2: Mm. in
1: ways that the new situation isn't calling for it. So what you lose there is you now lose um, context. Mm. And what I mean by that is you're bringing an old story into a new situation and you aren't able to see that person that you're interacting with in the new situation in the new relationship yeah. for who they are and so you lose the context and and you know Josh what you were talking about earlier with that quote is you were saying you know when you hold on to the piece of driftwood
2: mm-hmm.
1: and this is this is what i'm talking about when i'm talking about rigidity versus agility mm. rigidity is this this holding on to thoughts emotions stories either from our childhood or even from last week or even from earlier today that don't serve us and who we want to be in our lives. And there is such um, profound power that comes with connecting with those difficult emotions, mm-hmm. but also not getting stuck in them so that we're moving in ways that feel values aligned and connected. And, you know, to use what you were intimating in in what you were describing there, like a sense of authenticity and, mm-hmm. and alignment in behavior, action and values.
3: Yeah. It's funny because like, <clears throat> I think before I would have, a, a I don't know, the thought when I'm talking to someone, especially someone new, it's like, okay, how do I want this person to see me? And yeah. I, and that's kind of like always in my head. Where now it's like, when I'm talking to someone, it's like, okay, how can I be my most genuine self right now? Like, how can I really present who I am rather than how I wish they would see me? And
1: yeah, it's so it's so powerful, isn't it? The 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 thoughts that we start spinning in our heads mm-hmm. about other people's perceptions or other people's wants or needs in a way that. Is actually, it it becomes focused on us actually mm. and our needs, yeah. and actually stops us being present. You know, I've got this. When I did my TED talk um, on emotional courage, I've I've got this beautiful friend who I've literally been friends with since we were three years old, and she's an extraordinary theatre director. And she she described to me something that I thought was so powerful. She was like. You know, when you go onto a stage, often people see a stage as being um, distant. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like there's a sense of distance between you and the audience. And she said, if you think about actually what a stage is, especially, you know, dating back to Greek times, when going to the theater in Greek times was actually compulsory. Because in Greek times, people were at war and there was chaos and going to the theater was compulsory because it wasn't entertainment. Mm. It was it was the the Greek chorus was uh, a way that people could sit in the audience and they w- were given the space to process what was going on. Yeah. The chorus, the theater. And so what she described to me, and I think this this has become such a powerful metaphor for me in the work that I do. She said, you know, the stage is is not, a, the stage is not an articulation of distance, rather the stage is. If you think about what a stage is in theater, it's a, it's a, an outheld hand. You know, if you think of what if you think physically of what a stage looks yeah, like, yeah. it's a, it's an outheld hand and it's it's an offering. Mm. You know, you're making an offering, and I, and that was like just what you described with me. It's it, it, or what you described earlier. It's like such a profound thing because when we're in conversation, when we're presenting something, when we, you know, whatever our work brings us to,
2: mm-hmm.
1: as soon as we start giving the energy to, oh, this is about me and I feel distant. And uh, we we land up getting hooked yeah. into a way of being that is driven by ourselves and our our ego and our needs. And when we instead are able to be with what is the offering here. Mm. Um, and the offering could be one of authenticity or connection or love or compassion. There's so many offerings. Yeah. But the the offering is really the offering of our values. And it brings us into a different relationship with the, the person who's now no longer a recipient, but there's someone that we are in relationship with.
0: Yeah, mm. love that. In the book... You, uh, we talk about a few things. I want to dive into them, but just the subtitle alone get unstuck, embrace change, and thrive and work in life. What does it mean to you to get unstuck? Because, We have a lot of people who call into the show and as you'll see in a moment, people who write into the show and they have questions and it's almost always I'm stuck somewhere in my life. Mm. But broadly, what does it mean to get unstuck? Yeah,
1: So I think there are a couple of levels that we can get unstuck. The first level is um, the inner level. Uh, and the getting unstuck is moving into a space that feels healthy and clean with our emotions, and and broadly speaking, uh, that is about neither bottling, pushing difficult emotions aside, mm-hmm. but it's also not an invitation to brood.
0: That's the other. You thing know, we have to, to feel book.
1: so immersed in our difficult emotions that like. You know, to use the analogy that we spoke about earlier, it, it's like you can hold those books so far away from you that it stops your ability to problem solve and to see the other person. Mm. But you can also have those emotion books that you're holding so tightly to your chest about how you feel you can get h- hooked on your Twitter feed, mm. you know, stuck in being right, immersed in your rightness and the other person's wrongness. Mm. And that is a way of brooding or being in our difficult emotions that mm. is the opposite of bottling, but actually, interestingly, has the exact same outcomes in terms of low levels of well being, difficult problem solving, and so on. Like, it, it's just like these things look so different bottling versus brooding. They look so different. Mm. And yet, the outcomes are very, very similar because mm. they all keep us uh, stuck in our heads rather than living our lives and mm. being present with people. So I think a first component of getting unstuck is is very much about uh, getting healthy with our thoughts and our emotions and our stories, wh- which is different from what the world tells us. You know, the world tells us actually if we just like set up our environment, okay, like everything's gonna be fine. But 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 how we deal with our inner worlds, our thoughts, our emotions, and our stories drives everything, mm-hmm. everything. Our our leadership the way we parent, the way we come to our relationships, what we buy, how we buy, whether we are able to engage in health behaviors, everything. So a first component um, of what getting unstuck means to me is about this um, movement to breathing. And we can talk about what these look like from a kind of strategic, practical perspective, but it's about this relationship that you have with yourself. A second component I think of getting unstuck is uh, that we need to also recognize that we live in a world in which social contagion is real. Oh yeah. And here's like what I mean, and I know that like you've explored this like so much in in, in the, the work that you do, but if you live in a community in which someone in the community that you do not even know gets divorced. Mm. it significantly, these are large scale epidemiological studies. It significantly increases your likelihood that you will get divorced. Oh, wow. If you are trying to be healthy and you go on an airplane and your seat partner who you do not even know, you've never met the person, that seat partner buys candy it significantly increases the likelihood that you will buy candy. Mm. We saw this during the pandemic. Everyone was like shoving more toilet paper than they could ever use in their lifetimes into their shopping carts. So what does this mean? It means that in ways that we do not even recognize, we start having experiences in our communities that become normalized mm. and that we then start chasing. So our next door neighbors driving a nice new car, we want that car. Um, you know, we want the promotion. Like we start wanting things. There's that beautiful talking head song and I'm showing my age here, but that that song of like, and then you turn around in 20 years and you like say, how did I ever get here? Yeah, You know, how did I get here? So I think a second component of getting unstuck is seeing into the reality, which is that the environments that we live in shape in subtle but profound ways what we do, what dreams we have, what we want to buy, and, and how we live our lives. Mm. And so, of course, then you start asking questions about like, well, how do we protect ourselves against... This, I call it like an autopilot, this Mm -hmm. like autopilot way of living. How do we protect against it? And there's just very, very beautiful research, for instance, showing that developing a sense of clarity as to what your values are is one of the most powerful protectors of Uh, social contagion and I'll give you if I may just a very quick uh, I don't know I don't know if people are interested in the kind of scientific studies around this but there's this beautiful work that's been done looking at imagine you grow up in a community in which every message that you've been given is we don't go to college Mm. okay Mm -hmm. we're not cut out for college we're not college material we we just not this is not us but you are passionate and you care about a particular field and you study and you try and finally you make it to college. And then, because life's beauty holds hands with its fragility, one day, as will happen, you fail a test or or your essay that you really tried with, you don't do well. And that's going to happen. So... What then is the manifestation of that for us psychologically? It's interesting when people talk about biases, we most often think about biases as things that other people have about us. Mm -hmm. You know, you are biased against me. You're biased against my gender. You're biased. What we don't often talk about is the notion of Mm self-bias. And this is how self-bias plays out. Self-bias plays out. You've lived in an environment in which you've been told who you are and who you should be. You fight against it, you fight against it, you go off to college and then something happens and now you're in a moment of stress. Mm. At that moment of stress, what tends to happen is those biases that other people had about us, we start to activate and weaponize against ourselves. So we start to say things like, oh, maybe they were right. Maybe I'm not cut out for this role. Maybe I'm I'm not in the right profession. Like maybe I shouldn't be at college. Maybe I'm not Mm. college material. And at that point, many of these students will actually drop out. Mm. So you then say, of course, okay, this is the connection with getting unstuck in the self and getting unstuck in the environment. How do we start protecting against that? Like, Mm. how do we protect against it? Mm Because it's so subtle and it's so, um, such a kind of, yeah, it's like a pernicious thing that happens. And what we know with these students is if we take them and literally Sit them down and ask them to engage in a 10-minute exercise. And the exercise is this. Just spend 10 minutes writing about what your purpose is, why you're studying what you're studying, what future you want for yourself in relation to this area of study, And we find that when people spend just 10 minutes connecting with their why, their values, it actually protects them two and three years down the line from that social contagion and from those self-biases.
0: Because they know who they are.
1: Yeah. You know, they know who they are. They know what's important. And when you know who you are and you know what's important, you are more able to stay the course. You know, you're more able to say the course. I think about it a little bit like a gymnast. Um, Well, actually, maybe before I get to a gymnast, there's this beautiful uh, Greek philosopher, Heraclitus. And Heraclitus described how um, he said, you can never step into the same river twice. And it's beautiful. You can never step into the same river twice. You know, what is that connecting with? It's connecting with the idea that The world, the environment, social media, technology, politics, economics, like the world is always changing. Mm. And we as human beings are also changing and evolving. And so we can't get rigid into what we were talking about earlier, those like, well, I did this when I was two, now I'm going to do it when I was 22, because Mm. then you aren't again being in the world as it is. Mm. So what we land up being is we land up being these people walking through a world where we are changing and where the world is changing and where what keeps us stable is the relationship that we have with ourselves,
2: mm, right? Yeah. you know,
1: our, our core. And so, you know, coming back to this, this, uh, this idea of, you know, the, the person writing for 10 minutes, it's almost like a gymnast you know, you you think about a gymnast and you think about the, there's the music and the crowd and the audience and like there's all of the stuff that's going on in the background with this gymnast and and the gymnast is also responding to what's going on in the environment. But there is this core. There's a strong inner core of like, these are my values. Mm. This is what I care about. And... It's that core that helps us to land effectively when the world is changing around us. And
0: you you see some people perform really well in those environments because they have that core. I'm a a basketball fan. I remember during COVID, they all played in a bubble. And the teams that were better without a crowd emerged differently from the teams that perform really well in front of a crowd. Yes, yes. But we do have some surprise questions I want to dive dive into today. Yeah, yeah. Love it. From our audience. (laughs) Love it, love it. We'll get to the live stream here in a bit. Patrons, if you have a question and you're watching this live, drop it in the chat. But Malabama, let's start with a question from Jennifer. I crave a sense of control from growing up in a chaotic household, but now as an adult, it's costing me my relationships and inner peace. How do I keep my emotions and trauma from holding me back?
3: Uh, Jennifer I, I, your th- I mean Josh
0: your thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say I think Ryan wrote this question as, under an alias. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought you wrote the, like I your, thought he wrote the yeah, question. Yeah,
1: Jennifer, I think it's so um, <laughs> well, I think that's such a powerful question because it it really does speak to exactly what we were talking about previously around past ways of being mm. in the world that were actually functional. And I think that's really important. So, you know, Jennifer, I, I, a, a core part of my work is really about self compassion. Mm. And I think that this is really important. And for everyone who's listening right now, I invite you just for a moment to recognize that like there is a five year old inside you. You know, we all walk through the world in our armor. You know, we've got our our clothes and our shoes and our way of being and our introduction and our elevator pitch and we've got all of this stuff. But beneath all of it, there is is a five-year-old inside of us. And that five-year-old is very often just like tugging us on our shirt and saying, you know, see me, Mm. like, see me, love me. And so I think a really important part of recognizing that the past strategies no longer serve the current is bringing first and foremost, Mm self-compassion to that five-year-old inside of you who was trying to figure out life. and for everyone who's listening, it's like, what is the five-year-old inside of you asking for right now? You know, does the five-year-old need more spontaneity or more creativity, connection? Um, Does the five-year-old need you to just like even physically put your arms around yourself and just say, I've got you, I'm here for you? You know, it becomes very difficult to move forward in your power, Jennifer, unless you are taking your five year old with you.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, I, you know, if that little five year old was coming to you and telling you what it needs right now, uh, just holding that five year old is really very powerful. Mm. Because we can't move to the, well, what do you do and how do you, uh, unless, unless we are actually walking in integrity with, with that five-year-old. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other person we want to walk with integrity with is the person who's maybe 20 years older or 30 years older than you. So I don't know how, you, how old you are, Jennifer, but if, imagine you're 30. Um, what is the 50 old or what is the 70-year-old in you need Because there is a 70-year-old in you that is also saying, see me and love me and Mm. um, be kind to me. And that 70-year-old is also asking you to kind of let go of some things, connect with some things, um, to see yourself. That 70-year-old is is also giving you advice and psychologically this is called continuity of the self um and r- really what continuity of the self is it's very powerful uh, we we think about uh astronauts will often talk about this astronauts will often talk about how when they go into outer space they they see the the blob of the earth as they get more and more away from the earth they see the blob of the earth and they recognize that the blob of the earth is like a pinprick Mm. and that that pinprick of the world reminds them simultaneously of their insignificance mm. okay your your insignificance
2: mm-hmm.
1: and your significance mm. your your insignificance and your significance and your 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 power as a person and so what is continuity of the self continuity of the self is often when we are feeling triggered in a particular environment or in a relationship, or when we're shutting ourselves down from love or opportunities, we are seeing ourselves only at, in this moment in time, which is the current me who feels threatened or who feels stuck. Um, but just starting to call in your board of advisors, which is your childhood self, as well as your, your older self, mm. and getting advice from them allows us to develop this, develop the sense of continuity where we now are no longer just in the moment with ourselves, but we are also in the moment with our past and our future. So I could speak more about various uh, aspects of this and I'm sure we'll, Jennifer, as we get to other questions, there are going to be some answers that connect very much with uh, what you are describing here mm. um, as other strategies that are helpful. But I think just... Um, kind of breathing into the beauty of you, not in a way that's false, not in a way that's forced, not in a way that says just be positive, but in a way that recognizes that compassion is extraordinary. Mm. Um, If you don't mind, I'd love to, again, I feel like I'm being very nerdy here, but I want (laughs) to kind of play out something that happens in, that we've all seen as to why self-compassion is so important. So all of us have been into a restaurant where we've seen uh, a little kid, maybe 18 months old or two years old, and... Uh, There's this beautiful scene that unfolds in front of us, which is you've got this little child, the child sitting at the table with parents or caregivers. And the child decides that now they're going to go and explore the restaurant. They're going to go kind of
3: look (laughs) around. I was that kid, by the way. They're going to (laughs) go say hello to
1: everyone. They're going to go and like fiddle with the splendor and like do what, what kids do. Right. And the child does something so beautiful. The child climbs off its chair and it like runs a couple of steps forward. And then what does it do? It actually, you, you, you see it. And if you, if you do developmental studies in psychology, you literally see this unfolding before your eyes, which is the child runs, 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 runs. I'm being curious. I'm being whatever. And then the child looks back at the table, yeah. sees that the parents or caregivers are still there. And then what does it do? Does it go back to the parents or caregivers? No, Mm -mm. it doesn't. It explores even more. So what you're seeing here, John Bowlby, the beautiful psychologist, John Bowlby, described this idea as what the child is doing is the child is in a space of secure attachment. Mm. It is the knowledge that if something happens, if I'm under threat, that my parents or caregivers are going to be able to come in and help me. Mm-hmm. It is literally the knowledge of the secure base that enables the child to learn, to be curious, to take risks, to grow and to explore. Mm. So this is what self-compassion does. Mm. Self-compassion is that principle psychologically applied to the self. You can't go through life without having your heart broken. Mm. You can't go through life without learning, without losing your job sometimes, without things like just not going according to plan. Mm -hmm. So this knowledge that when, when not if, when things don't go according to plan, that you will love yourself. And if you're watching this video stream, like when doctors are going in to give bad news, we often ask them to do this, to like literally physically hug themselves and hold themselves.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Because we often live in our heads. But we are tactile. We are, we are, we are human. So when we do this, we're grounding ourselves in our humanity and in our in our hearts. And there's something so beautiful in that. And so self-compassion is quite literally the idea that when things go poorly, you will hug yourself. You will say to yourself, Not you, stupid idiot, why did you do that? You'll say, Susie, you know you did the best you could in the circumstance. In other words, the knowledge that you have your own back is the essence of what allows you to explore, to be curious, to be vulnerable, mm. to be human. Yeah.
3: That's beautiful. So, love yeah, Jennifer, yeah. I, I yeah,
1: thank you. That that well, was a really beautiful question. You said a couple of
3: things that have really like changed my whole perception on these negative emotions and the first one was is the stories no longer work so long a long time ago I um was doing this like trauma class yeah and one of the pieces of advice that this man gave me was hey um when you start to feel those emotions come up talk to your younger self what does that five-year-old need to hear right right then and there and what I end up telling myself usually is like hey man it's okay like it's it's it sucks right now but it's gonna be okay yeah you got to get through it but really um What I'm recognizing is that there are, that's my way of basically telling my five-year-old self like, hey man, this mechanism that you have right here, it doesn't work anymore. Like you have to approach this in a different way. And then the second thing you said that really kind of made made so much sense to me is you got to look at your older self and be compassionate with them. I just turned 40 years old. It's really weird. Thirty was really easy. Thirty yeah, was great, yeah, yeah. but but thirty to forty, it passed. You're gonna
1: get to fifty pretty soon. Exactly, Happy May.
3: and it's funny because I'm yeah. like I'm like fifties right around. If, if the forties go as fast as the thirties, I'm gonna be fifty tomorrow. Yeah, and um, I, I'm I'm starting to hold a little like fear, resentment, you know, just the unknown and so forth and so on. Um, but. I'm going to, instead, I'm going to talk to that. What does a 50-year-old need to hear? When I start to feel that, I got to think to myself, like, what does that 50-year-old need to hear right now?
1: Yeah. I love uh, that. The, uh, the past and so the future. beautiful. And it connects you. It connects you with uh, not just those people in you, but also who you want to be in the moment mm. so that you can move forward with clarity to those people. Yeah. Um, I wanted to, if it's okay, to sure. just actually, you know, you spoke about these difficult emotions. And one of the core parts of my work is this idea that um, it sounds so obvious that people say, you know, positive emotions and negative emotions. And the idea that positive emotions are good and that negative emotions are bad. Like Mm. this idea is literally bound up in our entire culture.
2: Yeah,
1: And a core part of my work has really been to push against that. And the reason that I think this is so important, and maybe I'll kind of share a little bit about my history, if if that's okay,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which is, um, I, I speak about this a little bit on my TED Talk, which is when I was 15 years old and my father was 42, he was diagnosed with terminal cancer and I remember one day, uh, it was a Friday, and my mother came to me and said to me to put my backpack down. I was about to go off to school, and my father was dying at home. And my mom said to me to go and say goodbye to my father.
2: Mm.
1: And so mm. I put my backpack down, and I kind of walk through the passage um, to where my father is dying. And, you know, this idea of seeing versus Unseeing, my father's eyes were closed, and yet I knew that he knew that I was there because in his presence, I had always felt seen. And I kissed him goodbye, and I told him I loved him, and I headed off for school that day and he he died that day, and I remember you know, going through the motions you know we spoke earlier about kind of the autopilot. and I remember going through the motions of the history and the math and the biology and and as my father steps from the world. And then the months go, you know, the May, July, September, and I'm going about and people are saying to me like, how are you doing? How are you doing? How are you doing? And I was like, I'm okay. I'm okay. Because it feels like we live in a world that values relentless positivity. Yeah. And where you kind of become the master of being okay. The world feels like it's falling apart. We, you know, have recently been an experience in in the shadow of illness and death in this p- p- pandemic. And yet like you couldn't, you couldn't not go onto like uh, social media and like not see someone saying something like, well, if you didn't use your time in quarantine to uh, write your screenplay or to perfect sourdough bread baking, you know.
3: (laughs) Which by the way, I did both. Yeah,
1: (laughs) but but if you didn't, if you didn't, there's something wrong with you. Yeah, right. Isn't it remarkable that even when we were in the shadow of illness and death, Mm -hmm. that the world was conspiring to not see to, to say, don't see yourself. Like, y- you know, don't see your emotions. Don't see how difficult this is. Don't see the things that are around you. You know, if you didn't use your time in quarantine to dust off your screenplay or to perfect sourdough bread baking, it's not that you lack the time. It's that there's something wrong with you. You lack the discipline. Like, you you know, there's something, there's something inherent in this idea that like, yeah. you've just got to look for the silver lining. Yeah. Always, constantly look for the silver lining. And, you know, like, if you used your time in quarantine to perfect your knowledge of 20th century Scandinavian cinema, Mm. all power to you, you know, like that's fine. Okay. But it is, but, but I suppose what I'm pointing to here is this like kind of remarkable idea that says like, turn away, turn Mm. away, turn away. And so one of the core parts of my work is really this idea that, um, while we are always wanting to be the master of being okay and move towards these so-called positive emotions, what we are often doing when we are moving towards forced false positivity, okay, so not, not like genuine joy or genuine forced false positivity is we are moving away from the self.
2: Mm.
1: And um, so what does that really mean? That That means that, our emotions, all of our emotions are not good or bad, positive or negative, but rather all of our emotions are actually w- w- what I might call functional.
2: Yeah. And
1: what I mean by functional is that our emotions are signposting our needs and our values. So, so let me get practical here with what I mean. If you are in a job where you feel really, really, really busy, but also like really, really, really bored and you can be bored and busy at the same time. We can get stuck in that boredom. We can say, well, like I'm bored, I'm bored, I'm bored and I feel stuck. But in a very powerful way, that boredom is actually signposting that you need more growth and learning. Mm. It's signposting a value. And so you have this beautiful... Opportunity to move towards the thing that you value. Loneliness. We've all experienced, or many of us, many people have experienced great levels of loneliness in the past couple of years. And loneliness, you can be lonely in a crowd. You know, you can you can be lonely when you're in a house with your spouse. Mm. So loneliness, what is loneliness signposting? Loneliness is signposting a need for greater levels of intimacy and connection. And it can be the recognition as simple as that, you know, you go out to dinner with your loved one the conversation is so predictable. You know what the person's going to order. You know what their opinion of the movie was. Like you just, so what you're starting to move into here is an autopilot with your relationship. Mm. And that loneliness is actually signaling that you need more intimacy and connection. And that if you move in the relationship towards greater levels of, of depth, where you may be talking about Dreams that you spoke about on your first date, but you haven't spoken about for five years since,
2: mm-hmm.
1: or greater levels of breadth where you're starting to explore other conversations with one another. Mm-hmm. That is a way that you move towards your values. So in a in a long short way, what I'm really talking about in my work is this idea that we, when we move away from the idea that there are good and bad emotions and that We've got to hustle with the bad emotions mm-hmm. to turn them into good emotions. And we instead start saying, WTF, what the funk? Mm-hmm. Not not what the F word, but what the funk? <laughs> if, you, if you NC, what mm-hmm. the funk? Mm-hmm. What the funk is basically saying, what is the function of this emotion? Mm-hmm. What is this emotion telling me? What is it trying to signpost to me about my needs and my values and what's important? And, you know, we spoke earlier about being clean.
2: Mm.
1: You can see when you're hustling with whether your emotions are allowed or not allowed, then you, you're not being clean with yourself. Yeah. But when you're starting to recognize that this is how I feel, I feel I, I am grieving. I am lonely. I am angry. I am whatever these things are. Mm-hmm. You can start connecting with the fact that these emotions are signposting something that's important to you. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's then moving you out of your head, into your life and into your values, connecting with the why that we were speaking about earlier. Yeah,
0: we're, we're running out of time here. But I do want to get to two more questions. I feel like we've touched on them already, but I thought it'd be useful to address them head on. Let's answer Tara's question: Is grief considered emotional clutter or an essential part of experiencing loss? Grief, you know,
1: I spoke about earlier life, life's beauty is inseparable from its fragility. And I would say grief, you know, grief, just tough emotions are part of our contract with life. We don't get to walk through the world without grief. And and grief, you know, just connecting with what I was speaking about earlier with uh, functional emotions. Um, what is the function of grief? Mm. You know, what is the function of grief? Grief is... Uh, often tapping us on the shoulder and saying, "If you're grieving for a person, like when I when I think about grief with my dad, as an example, it's often re- remember the memories. Don't push them aside. Remember the memories. Mm. Remember the lessons. Remember the connections. Remember the special time. There is there is something so um, extraordinary in grief, and so when we try push grief aside." We become, you know, unidimensional people. People often talk about getting over grief. We don't get over grief. There is no such thing as getting over grief. Grief rewrites us. Grief rewrites our narrative. Mm. Um, And so what we learn to do is we learn to walk with grief. As soon as we try to push, push grief aside, then we're actually getting into clutter. Yeah um we mm. we lo- we we walking with with grief
0: when Ryan and I talk about clutter we talk about things that get in the way but grief often clears a path for us in a way forward
1: yeah when when if if we're grieving a person or even if we're grieving a a dream you know mm. if we're grieving a dream what is that dream saying we might not have that dream in its exact form um but that dream is a, a candle again of something that is important that's signposting something that's important and it's it is it's trying to shine a light as you as you said it's clearing the way mm. in saying that there are very often actions that we can take that are moving us in ways that are important to us towards that dream
0: yeah, yeah. we have, we have a different question from a different jennifer this time around <laughs> What are some ways we can help others work through their emotional clutter? Now, I will say this, Susan, and quite often what we try to do is fix others because we're we're terrified of looking inward yeah. and, and noticing what is wrong with us. And then, of course, every judgment, and you talk quite a bit about judgment in your book. Our judgments are, are merely insecurities that we're sort of Projecting toward others, you know, it's a mirror I'm holding up of my own insecurities. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I want to be careful. As one thing is, yeah, sometimes someone will come to you and they need help with their emotional clutter, right? <laughs> and, and and you can certainly help them. And I think one way we already talked about today is by seeing them. That seems yes. to be the the main way to help someone. Mm.
1: Yeah. So so let me kind of step back in terms of ourselves and then. And then apply to others. So Mm -hmm. if we strip back all of the research, all of the work on emotional health, what we find is that there are two core components of emotional health. When we're dealing with difficult emotions, difficult situations, there are two core components. The first is going to difficult emotions. This is the showing up. This is the compassion. This is the curiosity. Like what is this emotion signposting? So going to emotions is essential for emotional health and emotional well-being. Very often people try to bypass that. They try to jump to solution. They try to jump to outcome. They they have short-term fixes that they try to do. Well, I feel, you know, un- unhappy in this relationship, therefore I'm just going to leave the relationship. Mm. But actually sometimes it's the avoidance of the work and the real conversation yeah. that needs to happen. And so it feels like a quick fix solution, but actually it's not. It's actually a perpetuation of the problem. Mm. So uh, going to emotions is is critical to emotional health and well-being. This includes um, some very practical things that I'll talk about a little bit later um, if we have time. And the other part of it is going through emotions. And what I mean by going through, going through is about moving beyond the, okay, well, this is what this value is signposting. It's signposting that I need more intimacy and connection. Okay, so what is that then asking you to do? It's asking you in your life to put down your cell phone and to actually hug your partner. Mm. It's actually asking you to make choices that are values connected. So this is not about like, oh, we in our heads. We're going through emotions is about being able to connect with our values in our daily choices. Mm -hmm. Because every single day we have hundreds of what I call choice points. You know, I want to be healthier. Like a choice point might be, do I eat the chocolate cake or do I eat the fruit? Like that is a, Mm -hmm. a very practical choice point, but we all have them in ways that connect with our values. And so going through is about connecting more consistently with choice points that our values align So this is what emotional health looks like for ourselves. When it comes to others, we know that the same is true going to and going through. This often means that we need to actually really subaltern the other person. You know, to what you were talking about earlier, going to emotions is actually about not trying to jump in and fix and go through and like just you know I've got a solution to your problem the most important part of being able to support other people is in the going to there are fascinating studies showing that if you've got a child who is like throwing a tantrum on the floor of CVS Mm -hmm. your impetus might be to jump in and like reason with the child Mm. But there is actually very beautiful research just showing that the presence of someone mm. who loves you and cares about you and who's able to be with you, just that presence de-escalates the intensity of your emotional mm. experience and allows you to move from a stage where you're stuck inside the jar of the emotion to being able to step out of the jar and kind of read what's in the jar. Yeah. So that subabon is, I think, the most important aspect of supporting other people uh, through uh, through emotions. Mm-hmm. What's really important with this is that we spoke earlier about brooding, and there is a phenomenon known as co-brooding. Okay, so <laughs> co-brooding is when you go out with your best friend and you have a big fat bitch for like three hours about your father-in-law
2: mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you're like moaning and, moaning and moaning and moaning and
1: moaning and moaning and both of you are like, blah, 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 blah terrible? and you're going on about it. Yeah. And what happens is so interesting, which is you leave that interaction loving your best friend even more. She gets me, she understands me, he gets me, he understands me. Mm-hmm. But when you actually go back into the situation with your father-in-law, you are more likely to act out, act poorly. In other words, that co-brooding is actually, um, when I'm talking about a suburbona, I'm not talking about getting stuck in the person's difficult emotions Mm. and difficult experiences. So how do we help them to move to the go through? You, you, You cannot move them. That's not your job you can support them as they do it. And one of the ways that we can do that is just by by kind of helping them, even with simple things like helping someone to label their difficult emotions. Mm -hmm. So for example, someone who says, I'm stressed. Okay, I'm stressed, I'm stressed, I'm stressed, Mm -hmm. which is a very common, when we are struggling, very often we say we're stressed. Yeah. Yeah. But there is a world of difference between stress and disappointment, mm. stress and feeling unsupported, stress and that knowing, knowing feeling of you in the wrong job or the wrong career. And so when someone is like stuck in a difficult emotion and they're just saying, I'm stressed, I'm stressed, I'm stressed, as a friend, helping them to kind of unpick sometimes, it feels like it's, it's this actually about support. Mm. Or it feels like this is about disappointment. What that is called psychologically is it's called emotion granularity. And this is emotion granularity is a psychological superpower. Like talk about getting uncluttered, talk about whatever. We often use these big umbrellas to talk about what we're feeling. But when we become more nuanced and we say, it's this, you know, they're, they're these crayons in the box. And I keep on drawing on the blue crayon, but actually what I'm feeling is pink. Mm. You know, emotion, granularity, asking yourself, I'm saying it's stress, but what are two other options is one of the most profound ways that we start getting a level of insight and clarity. And as a friend, we can support people with insight and clarity.
3: That's, a, that's an amazing question. Like when someone... Re- releases an emotion or talks about an emotion, you can ask them like, what are two other words to describe that emotion? That'll help them dig a little bit deeper. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, That's it's, a great support I, mechanism.
1: I was, I, I was working with a client who would often describe, he would say he's angry. And he would mm. say like, I'm angry, my team's angry. I'm angry, my team's angry. And I started saying to him like, what are, what are two other options? And he started saying, actually, I'm not angry. I'm actually scared. Mm. You know, I'm actually scared about this job. And my team's not angry. My team's actually... Mistrusting. Mm. Now you can see if you go into a conversation where you're angry and your team's angry, it's a very different conversation than I'm scared and my team's looking to build yeah, trust.
3: Completely different. Completely different. Yeah.
1: And when you come home from work and you see your wife as angry mm-hmm. versus the person's needing support or the person's <laughs> just tired. Mm-hmm. Very different conversation. It, it literally shifts. And emotion granularity, when I call it a superpower, what I mean is that in longitudinal studies, we know that children who are as young as two and three years old, who are able to more accurately label their emotions, moving beyond just mad and sad in terms of being more nuanced, mm. literally over longitudinal studies, 10, 20, 30 years, have higher levels of mental health and well-being, greater ability to delay gratification. And you can see why this is. If, if someone says to a 16-year-old, hey, I've got this great idea, like let's do drugs together. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, the child like wants acceptance and connection and that social contagion is starting to play in. But a child that's more granular with their emotions is able to say, "Hmm, this looks exciting, but there's something that feels wrong here. Mm-hmm. And the child who's able to connect in with that is then able to um, move forward with those values.
3: Yeah. And you know, when you say to see someone it, to me, like that's a doorway to compassion, like to really like kind of hold space for something because that's how I get over my angry emotions when, or not angry, but my, my, uh, negative emotions are yeah. they're not bad, but they're, you know, yeah, they're, 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 just, they're negative. They're uncomfortable.
1: Yeah. They feel tough. They feel yeah. like you're struggling w- with it. Which by
3: the way, I love the, uh, demoralization because we moralize everything especially yeah. in America, but like the demoralization of these emotions is like, that's they're pretty just pow- That's like, pretty powerful. Just so whenever I have these negative emotions, especially when someone does something where I'm like, what are they thinking? What are they doing? Like, I really try to like, I try to see them, but the way I get there is really trying to understand like, where are they coming from? Why do they feel the way they feel rather than again, getting mad at the way I wish it was. And then trying to see it for how it actually is like that. I think that's how I get to see people.
1: Yeah, I think that's so powerful. Um, it, it's it's interesting when you think about the differences between, and I'm not sure if we've got time to go into it, but the differences between sympathy, which is very distant, mm-hmm. oh thoughts and prayers, I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's there's a sense sometimes that feels very distant. Empathy is literally trying to perspective take, so it's trying to imagine. You, you can never imagine accurately, but empathy is trying to imagine what this other person's world feels like. Mm-hmm. Compassion is um, is is very connected. So, so empathy is, is sympathy is distant. Empathy is connected. Trying to connect with the other person. Uh, compassion is connected and action oriented. Mm. In other words, you're trying to connect with where the person's at, uh, but you are you are you are moving to action now. By action, I don't mean problem solving or Mm. trying to fix. Sometimes just being open to conversation or the holding of the space or trying to work through things with a person is is this idea of uh, compassion. And I think it's so powerful that you talk about like opening the door when you're feeling stuck with someone via compassion, Mm. Because isn't that is it is just you know it's it's extraordinary to me how we can put a man on the moon and we can automate pizza delivery so you do not need to interact with another human being,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but the stuff that stuffs us up time and time again is the messy, difficult stuff inside of us because it is hard to human, and so I think that like what you what you're extending there on is like this kind of recognition that it's hard to human and and compassion is trying to kind of understand where this human is Mm. and the recognition that like at some level that they're doing the best they can Mm -hmm. within the circumstances that they are and with the psychological resources that they have available to them.
0: That's right. You know, we're running out of time, but I thought we'd at least turn to the live stream for at least one more question. I think we can. What's your favorite from uh, the live stream, Alabama? Oh, they're all so good. Uh, We've talked about a lot of different topics. I'm going to go with Arlene's question. They ask, how do you live with the memory of your old self when it is such a departure from who you are today and who you want to be? Mm.
1: I think an important part of this conversation at this point becomes the difference between uh, guilt and shame. So uh, uh, if we think about shame, uh, shame is a very immersive experience. Like when you say, um, when you look at studies of people who feel shame, what they're basically saying is, I am bad. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what you're doing is they are, they are the psychological term for this is is actually fusion. Fusion is when we say something like, I am sad, I am angry, I'm frustrated. And we start to over-identify with that emotional experience. Like I am, all of me is sad. There's no space for anything else. You know, I am, all of me is bad. There's no space for anything else. And um, there is a really important difference between shame, which is this I am all of me is bad experience versus guilt. Mm -hmm. Okay, because what I'm hearing a little bit in that question, there's a subtext of a level, like there's a subtext, maybe I'm overreading into it of shame and guilt and like change. And so I think the first thing is recognizing that shame is, um, when when we look actually in the research at people who've uh, committed crimes, And we look at people who feel shame versus guilt. So shame is this enveloping, I am all of me. Mm -hmm. Guilt is, I did a bad thing, okay? Or I did these things over these periods of my life that were bad, but I am not bad. I did these things that were bad. And so there's a really important distinction. The one owns me, encompasses me, that's shame. The other is I behaved in a way that was incongruent with who I want to be now or in the future. When you look at this distinction, um we look at people who've committed crimes as an example and people who feel shame are more likely to reoffend. Mm. Because you can see if if all of me is bad, well what's the point of trying?
0: I might as well okay, do I it may again. I might as well
1: just give up. Yeah. Whereas guilt, I did a bad thing, but I'm not bad. Mm. Is opening the door to, I believe, the wisdom and capacity that all of us have inside of us, which is this capacity for change and yeah. evolution. You know, we can never step into the same river twice. That's
2: right.
1: And so, I think, I think that um, firstly, recognizing that we might have done things that f- that feel distant to who we are right now it doesn't mean we are that person, is very powerful. I think self-compassion again comes in here. You, you know, often we were doing what we could, even if it doesn't make sense to us now. We were doing what we could with the knowledge and capacity that we had at the time.
2: Mm.
1: And and also, I think uh, there is this... Um, there's such power in the question because the question evokes a sense of possibility
2: mm.
1: and of of values that are like shining a light. And I would say, you know to to that question, keep moving towards that light. Mm. and it's not someone else's light, and it's not a forced false positivity light it's it's your light. Mm. It's your light that's coming through,
0: yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's great. Susan, I want to thank you for being here today. Patrons, thank you so much for your time. Check out Susan's book. It's called Emotional Agility. I'll hold it up if you're watching the video version. I'm really enjoying it. I'm about halfway in so far. And I'm going to finish it this week because uh, it's it's really compelling. Yeah. Is there anywhere else we should send folks to uh, check out your work?
1: Yeah. Uh, so my TED talk is called The Gift and Power of Emotional Courage. Uh, on my website, I've got a free quiz, which uh, generates a 10 page report, and a couple of hundred thousand people have taken it. It's a free report, and that's at susandavid.com forward slash learn. My book, Emotional Agility. And then I try to post really thoughtfully on social media. So if you connect with me there, um, I'd love that.
3: Cool. What's
0: your social media?
1: Uh, Susan David. PhD in some form.
0: We'll just put a link the, to it in all yeah, the show notes. Yeah, yeah, notes. depending great. on the, the awesome. <laughs>
1: depending on the forum. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Podcast okay, John I'll put a link to the website, the book, uh, and everything else we mentioned Sounds today amazing. in the show notes. Doctor Susan, David, thank you so much yeah. for being here. Thank you. Thank, thank you. That's you. A great work. Thank you. All right, y'all. Love people. Use things. We'll see you soon. Thanks so much, patrons. Every
3: little thing